The text for our sermon this morning is Hebrews chapter one, or chapter eight, rather, verses one to thirteen. Hebrews eight one to thirteen. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and therefore it was necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second, because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. In that he says, A new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This time I want to call our kids down front for their children's sermon. Back when your grandpas were, were little like you, they didn't use the big tractors that your dads use now. Back then, many farmers didn't even use tractors. It's not been that long ago that farmers did all their work by hand. They had teams of horses to pull a plow blade that would cut one row in the ground, and they would put the seeds in one at a time. It was very hard work, and very slow. It would have taken a couple weeks for people to do back then the amount of work that your dad can do now in one day. My grandpa was a farmer. One time we were visiting his sister, and he told us that he used to hitch his horses to his wagon to go into town to buy supplies, and when he, he would leave early in the morning. By the time that he had bought everything that he needed and got it all loaded into his wagon, it was too late to go home. So he would sleep in his wagon and leave for home the next morning. That trip that took my grandpa a whole day by horse-drawn wagon will take you about 30 minutes today if you're on the highway in a car. Can you imagine using a horse-drawn wagon to go to Mitchell? If you have a car, why would you use a horse-drawn wagon? Right? Or can you imagine using a team of horses to work your dad's farm? If you have a tractor, why would you use horses? Or if you have a tractor lawnmower, why would you use one of those old push mowers, right, that most of us did when we were kids. Now, what does any of this have to do with, with the Bible verses that we just read? Well, our verses tell us something that, that we've learned this before, that it's, in fact, it's repeating something that we have read many times. And let me just say something about that. If God repeats something that he tells us, 
What do you think that means? Well, it means that it must be a very important lesson, and it also means that we're likely to forget it. So God repeats it over and over to make sure that we learn it and that we don't forget it. Now, our verses teach us how God had promised that Jesus would come. He would live and die and raise from the dead for the sins of His people. And our verses tell us that God made a bunch of things that His people had to do when they went to church to worship so that they would learn about what Jesus would do. Now, like we've learned before, back in those days, there were men called priests who, when, who went to God for the people and offered innocent lambs as sacrifices for God's people. When that lamb was killed and its body was burned, God was showing them how Jesus would be innocent, but he would die for the sins of God's people. Now, what does this have to do with using horses instead of a tractor? Well, once you have a tractor, you would be foolish to use horses. Not only would it be foolish, but you and your family would suffer. You would be super tired from incredibly hard work, and you wouldn't harvest enough corn that you could sell to provide for your family's needs. In a similar way, our verses are teaching us that since Jesus has come, we no longer use animal sacrifices to worship God. They don't work. And Jesus has actually done what they only pictured. And in the same way, it would be sinful to use animal sacrifices now. Those sacrifices were just God's way of reminding his people that Jesus was coming. If you still tried to worship God by sacrificing a lamb, that would prove that you don't really believe in Jesus. It would prove that because there's no reason for you to offer your own sacrifice unless you don't believe that Jesus' death was good enough. Why would I ride on a horse all the way to Mitchell? That's crazy. But you know what the Bible teaches us? You know why it tells us about this? And it's because we all have something in our hearts that doesn't want to trust in Jesus to save us. We all have a natural desire to, to show what we can do and how good we are. Now I want you to listen to the rest of the sermon because we're going to talk more about these things. Now we're going to pray and then you can return to your seats. O Heavenly Father, Thy Word is perfect, restoring the soul, making wise the simple, and enlightening the eyes of the blind, the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. We, however, are by nature blind and incapable of doing anything good, and Thou wilt relieve only those who have a broken and contrite heart, and who revere Thy Word. We entreat Thee that Thou wouldst illumine our darkened minds with, with Thy Holy Spirit, and give us a humble heart, free from all haughtiness and carnal wisdom, in order that we, hearing thy word, may rightly understand it and regulate our lives accordingly. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. One of the great legacies of the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century was the principle that Scripture interprets Scripture. To put it formally, we would say that the Holy Spirit is the only infallible interpreter of Scripture. The great English Puritan John Owen worded it this way, the only unique, public, authentic, and infallible interpreter of Scripture is none other than the author of Scripture himself. That is God, the Holy Spirit. So when the Bible comments on itself or utilizes itself in any way, whether by direct quotation, allusion, or fulfillment in the Old or New Testaments, that is God's 
interpretation and therefore God's explanation for how we should understand the passage. Our text this morning is an example of this very thing. We have before us the Holy Spirit's explanation of His own words. We have citations from Exodus, Numbers, and Jeremiah, as well as allusions to many other places of Scripture. And from the pen of St. Paul, we have the Holy Spirit's own interpretation of these Old Testament passages. So our outline this morning runs as follows. Number one, the promise, and I mean the promise of the new. Secondly, the necessity of the new. And finally, the fulfillment. The promise of the new is our first point. Now, the first thing that we need to do is to see where this text, or this whole chapter, fits into the overall argument of the epistle. The whole burden of the epistle is the superiority of Christ over the old ways. And Paul argues like a good prosecutor. He starts with the strongest statement he can make. And then he puts into place other arguments presupposed by the first, and then he descends to particular examples. So right off the bat, Paul demonstrates from the Old Testament that Jesus is God. And if Jesus is God, then it goes without saying that he's greater than anything ordained in the worship of the Old Testament. Now, if you recall the order of the argument, Paul starts by saying that Jesus is God. And since Jesus is God, he is greater than the angels. And if he's greater than the angels, then he's greater than Abraham. If he's greater than Abraham, then he's greater than Moses. If he's greater than Moses, then he's greater than Joshua. If he's greater than Joshua, then he's greater than Aaron. If he's greater than Aaron, then he's greater than any subsequent priest. And if he's greater than any subsequent priest, then he's greater than the temple, the sacrifices, altars, incense, utensils, feasts, and laws. Now again, the whole burden of the epistle is to show that Christ is superior to the old ways. Now those old ways weren't bad. They were just temporary. And not only were they temporary, well, they were temporary because they were prophetic. In other words, they were pointing forward to Christ. And when Christ came, the old ways became obsolete. They still serve a purpose. They serve the purpose of proclaiming the gospel, especially in showing the glories of the work of Christ. But if you were to continue in them, that would be to reject their very meaning. You may remember an illustration I used once in a children's sermon about those wooden letter blocks, right? From the cradle, we introduce our kids to the building blocks of learning, pun intended. The point of that illustration is that the whole Old Testament administration of the covenant of grace was like those wooden letter blocks. It was intended to prepare God's people for a reality that was yet to come. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 24 and 25, Paul explains it this way. We, and he's speaking of the Old Testament saints, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterwards be revealed. And he means the faith of Christ. So he says, therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after the faith has come, we no longer are under a tutor. In other words, the whole Old Testament administration with its temple, its altar, its incense, its priests, prophets, kings, holy days, sacrifices, a dietary code, regulations for personal and corporate cleanness. All of that was a tutor, a teacher, telling them about Christ. 
once Christ came and fulfilled everything that those ordinances signified, they were obsolete. That doesn't mean they were bad or useless. It means they did their job. As I said once before, if you got a piano lesson book and used it, once you learn how to play, you can put the book in the piano bench. You could even give it away, not because it's worthless, but because it did its job. In our gospel reading, we looked at one of my favorite New Testament passages, Luke 24. And in it, Jesus uses the principle that we see here in Hebrews 8. He interprets the entire Old Testament by way of his life as it's recorded in the Gospels. So it's not just that Scripture interprets Scripture, but that the interpretation always has Christ at the center. It's what we call a Christocentric interpretation of Scripture. Now let's take some examples and we'll look at some famous Bible stories, uh, ones that even our kids know, and then maybe a few other examples. I'm not Adam and Eve. In fact, it's the order of the windows, by the way. Adam and Eve. Adam was the father of the whole human race, and that means that he was more than just a normal person like you or me. If we think of the whole human race as a giant oak tree, he was the acorn from which it grew. What he was and what he did, he did in our name and place. He acted for us and we acted in him. That's why the Bible says when Adam sinned, we all sinned in him. Now the Bible says that Jesus is the second Adam. When the first Adam disobeyed God, everyone disobeyed God. And that's why we're all born as sinners. When Jesus, the second Adam, obeyed God, he didn't obey just for himself, but for all his people. We obeyed in him. Jesus did for us what Adam failed to do. Then when God clothed Adam and Eve after they sinned, he did it by killing lambs and making clothes from them for them from the animals' skins. The Bible says that Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away our sin. Now Adam and Eve already knew that sin brings death. God had told them that before they ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When God killed the lambs to cover their shameful nakedness, he was teaching them that their sins could be forgiven if another who had no sin died in their place. And that's what Jesus did. So the story of Adam and Eve is really about Jesus. How about Noah's Ark? Well, in the days of Noah, people had become so sinful that God planned to destroy the whole world except for Noah and his family. And we know that the Bible says that God will once again destroy everyone on earth except for his people, his church. So the story of Noah is a picture about how when Jesus comes again, all the sinners will be judged and about how his people will be the only ones saved. The church is like the ark. So the story of Noah is really about Jesus. What about baby Moses? Well, when Moses was born, the Pharaoh of Egypt ordered that all the Israelite baby boys were to be killed. Pharaoh hated the people of Israel. He was afraid of them because God was blessing his people with many babies, which meant that soon there would be more Israelites than Egyptians. So evil Pharaoh commanded that all the baby boys from Israel be drowned in the Nile River as soon as they were born. When baby Moses was born, his mom made a little boat, like a miniature Noah's Ark, and put Moses inside it and placed it in the tall papyrus reeds at the river's edge. Then one morning, when Pharaoh's daughter went out to bathe in the river, she found the baby. She felt sorry for him, decided to keep him as her own. And so Moses, 
who led God's people out of Egypt was saved by Egypt from being killed like all the other baby boys of Israel. Now that should sound familiar because soon after Jesus was born, the evil King Herod found out that the true king of God's people had been born, and like Pharaoh, he hated God and his people. So Herod ordered that all the babies in Bethlehem, where Jesus was born, were to be killed. And just before this order was put into execution, an angel of God warned Joseph to hide in Egypt. And so Jesus, who delivers his people from the bondage of sin, he was saved by Egypt from being killed while the other baby boys of Bethlehem were killed. So again, the story of Moses is really about Jesus. And like Israel being called out of Egypt, Hosea 12 says that Jesus, God's son, is called out of Egypt. Now, after being baptized in the Red Sea, as Paul calls it in 1 Corinthians 10:2, Israel wanders in the wilderness for 40 years and falls to temptation over and over and over again. After being baptized in the Jordan River, Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days where he overcomes the temptations of the devil. And the temptations of Jesus correspond exactly to the temptations before which Israel fell. First, Israel sinned against God's provision by preferring the sustenance of Egypt over the Word of God typified by his daily provision of manna. Now Jesus rebuffs this temptation by citing the scripture which says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Israel repeatedly called God's faithfulness into question, all the while being unfaithful to God. Their repeated cry was, Is the Lord among us or not? And they tempted God. They put his faithfulness to the test when they asked for water at Massa as if he weren't carrying them as a father carries his son. And Moses says to them, why do you tempt the Lord? Forty years later, he reminds their children of this by saying, you shall not tempt the Lord your God as you tempted him in Massa. Jesus rebuffs this temptation to doubt God's providential care with the words of Deuteronomy 6.16. You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Israel turned from the pure worship of God to a polluted, self-pleasing worship when they made the golden calf. Jesus rebuffs the temptation to idolatry by declaring, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and Him only you shall serve. And so Israel's wandering in the wilderness was really about Jesus and His temptation in the wilderness. Let's think about marriage. The institution, which is the very core of human existence. The institution at which all the arrows of Satan and his servants are aimed. This institution is really about Christ. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul writes, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. 
So do you see how the Holy Spirit, speaking through the Apostle Paul, cites Genesis 2.24? He uses it as proof that the original intention of the institution of holy matrimony is to depict to us the loving bond of union between Christ and his church. And that leads us to our second point, the necessity of the new. Now, if all this be true, then it is plain that the Old Testament form of worship with its temple, altar, sacrifices, and ministering priests, this was all created to point to Christ. All of the events of the life of God's people and all the heroes involved in those events point past themselves to Christ. That's why the Bible, while it tells us of the great heroic deeds of of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Samson, David, or Solomon, it also pulls no punches telling us about their grave character flaws and gross lapses into sin. Because on the one hand, they typify the great Savior and King of God's people. And on the other hand, their sinful character makes us long for the real deal. We don't want a Savior who sleeps with Philistine prostitutes or who makes unholy alliances with wicked Ahab. We want a Savior who has become higher than the heavens. We don't want a priest who daily needs to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. We need a priest who is holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. And the way that our text shows us the necessity of the new is by showing that there were promises which the old could not fulfill. That's one of the reasons why I frequently use the metaphor of a promissory note or an IOU. So like if my phone bill is due and I send them Uh, your promissory note to pay me back $500 you've borrowed, they're not going to be too impressed. Now, truth be told, maybe if they knew me and they knew you and they were privy to the transaction represented by that IOU, maybe we could say they should have faith. But even if they do, that piece of paper that says IOU won't actually pay the bill. In like manner, God's righteousness requires that his justice be satisfied. And therefore, all sin must be punished with temporal and eternal punishment. Likewise, God will not punish any other creature for the sin which man has committed. But throughout the entire Old Testament era, God promised to forgive his people's sins by way of sacrifice. But the sacrifices he instituted were animal sacrifices. Now, there's no way that a lamb, a bull, a goat, or a turtle dove could be an acceptable legal substitute for a human. I mean, if you hire me to do some work in your fields and I send my dog over in my place, you're not going to be too thrilled. The very existence, therefore, of the Old Testament arrangement of priests and sacrifices cried out for a replacement. The system carried within itself the seeds of its own obsolescence. And that leads us to our third point the fulfillment. Now, Paul builds the whole argument on the word new from Jeremiah 31, 31. It's amazing how much can turn on one word. Actually, a lot can turn on one letter. Over the past few weeks, I pointed out how Paul reads God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 22, 18. The words of that promise are, in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. In Galatians 3, Paul argues that since the word is the singular seed, 
and not the plural seeds, that the promise regards one individual, namely Christ. The promise is not that all the nations of the earth will be blessed in Israel or in the New Testament church, but rather in Christ. In our text, then, Paul loads the full burden of his argument on the word new. If there was already an administration of the covenant which was sufficient to accomplish what God had promised, then he would never have used the word new. Now, how do we know that Christ's coming was the transitional point? Well, Scripture interprets Scripture. So, we turn to the very words of Scripture itself. In the institution of the Lord's Supper, Jesus says, This cup is the New Testament in my blood which is shed for you. In chapter 9 of Hebrews, Paul's going to link this ratification of the New Testament in Christ's blood to the ratification of the covenant in Exodus 24.8, where we read, Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. This new covenant or testament, it's not new in its essence. It's simply new in its administration. The heart of the covenant is the same. We read that in Jeremiah 31. I will be your God and you shall be my people and I will dwell among you. God makes this promise to Abraham in Genesis. He repeats it to Israel before they leave Egypt in Exodus 6-7. God repeats it to Israel after they've left Egypt in Leviticus 26.12. In Isaiah 7.14, God defines the words, I will dwell with you, to mean that as God on Mount Sinai, God came down to speak to his people, God will come down in human flesh and be one with his people and dwell with them in exactly the same way that they dwell, in human nature. The Gospels all cite this promise with reference to the Incarnation. And Revelation ends by declaring that the ultimate fulfillment of the promise of God to be our God and to dwell with us is to be found with Christ in the glorious bliss of eternity. Now, our third observation, or our third point, leads us to a couple of observations. First, there is no future return to the ways of the Old Testament. Now there is a popular theological school called dispensationalism that argues this very thing. At its heart, dispensationalism claims that God has two ways of salvation. The first is salvation by works, which was the system for Old Testament Israel, and the second way is salvation by grace, which is the system for the New Testament church. And according to this theory, a moment will come in which the time of the Gentiles will be over, and a supposed rapture will take place where all the Christians will magically disappear from the earth, after which God will revert to the old way of salvation, and Jesus will return to rule the world from Jerusalem in a rebuilt temple. Now, I cannot express how blasphemous this teaching is. But let me try. Those of you who are older parents, what do you think of the parenting skills of young people when you see them cave in to their children's tantrums or rebellious disobedience? You understand that these children are headed for disaster unless their parents get their act together. You may never say it out loud, but you think things like, 
These people need to be saving for bail, not for college. Now, what, pray tell you, are we to think of a system that essentially has God behaving like these unprincipled parents? We are to believe that, that God looks upon 2,000 years of Jewish rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. He throws His hands up in defeat and says, You win! You can have your temple and sacrifices back. You can have your priests back and your old system of salvation by works. How is that not blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Popular American evangelicalism has pumped billions of dollars into Israel in the fanciful notion that God plans to reestablish the theocracy complete with a temple in which animal sacrifices will be reinstated. So instead of proclaiming the gospel to unbelieving Jews in the belief that God will open the eyes of his elect among them, and harden the hearts of the reprobate among them, Christians have participated in a system that deceives them into thinking crime pays. They can kill their prophets, reject Christ, persecute Christians, promote evil doctrines and practices, and just hold out long enough, God will cave in. Like an indulgent parent of a toddler in the cereal aisle who buys the cereal that kid will never eat just to shut him up. You win! That's dispensationalism. Men like Darby, Schofield, Lindsay, Haggie, and all their donors have the blood of countless sinners on their hands because they've participated in this scheme of deception. They've enabled men who reject Jesus to make merchandise of their rebellion. Now, Our second observation has reference to the inspiration of Scripture. Our text teaches us, by example that the inspiration of the Bible is verbal, meaning to the very words. Now, there are men who have taught that the inspiration of the Bible is not the words themselves, but in the thoughts and concepts. This supposedly explains how the books of the Bible can be inspired by God, yet penned by different men who use their own unique modes of expression and vocabulary. The glaring weakness, of course, in this theory is that you cannot possess concepts in the absence of words. And if you can't possess concepts in the absence of words, how can you convey these concepts to someone else to put into words? No, dear friends, it's the very words of Scripture that are inspired. In 2 Timothy 3.16 we read, Scripture is given by inspiration of God. The Greek literally says Scripture is breathed out by God. That means personally spoken by God. Psalm 12.6 says the words of the Lord are pure like silver, tried in the furnace of earth, purified seven times. Proverbs 30 verse 5 reads, every word of God is pure. The argument of our text is that the Old Testament administration is now obsolete. It is forever gone. There will never again be animal sacrifices, a hereditary priesthood, and a physical temple <coughs> in which these priests will offer their sacrifices. <coughs> Moreover, anyone who read the Old Testament during that administration should have seen its end coming because it was merely a shadow of heavenly realities. That's why God was so adamant that Moses and Israel follow his blueprint with such meticulous precision. 
Because it couldn't faithfully point to Christ unless it was constructed exactly as God designed it. Incidentally, this teaches us that God designs his own worship. Now, Paul loads the entire weight of his argument on the single word, new. Now, no one would dare do something like this unless he were absolutely convinced of the verbal inspiration of Scripture. Unless every single word, or as Jesus puts it, every stroke of the pen, were divinely breathed out by the mouth of God, you wouldn't dare hinge an argument for the obsolescence of a form of God's eternal covenant on a single word. Surely this shows us the respect that we should have for the Bible as the word of God. Every word was specifically chosen by God and placed in the mouths of his prophets and apostles, and he will not let one word fall to the ground. The 20th chapter of Revelation ends with these words, And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged, according to their works, by the things which were written in the books. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Think what you want of the Bible, but I caution you in the name of Christ, whose minister I am, that every human who has ever lived will stand at the judgment seat of Christ and will be judged according to the words of this Bible. Let us pray.